from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Yes, we are here in the New York City area, and you are not, well, you may be, but wherever you are, it's great to have you here with the Badass Counseling Show. Uh, we greet listeners from around the world, from France. We had a few check-in just this week from France, and that was kind of neat. I didn't understand a word they said because they were speaking French. Um, no, I'm teasing. I uh, love the French. And we have listeners across the United States from Oklahoma all the way up into Idaho and over to Michigan and Maine. It's great to have you here on the show. We've got a really cool show today. We're going international yet again. We've had a bit of a string of internationals, Rob. You are the best. You get all over the place all yeah. the time. Yeah, okay. All right. I've got Rob here in studio and I've got Casey in the booth. Rob, what's the good word today? I'm doing well and I wanted to uh, read some listener mail, if I may. This is, uh, this is from Beth from Texas, who was on a week or so ago. She said, I just wanted to say thank you so much. There's like six O's after the S and so. <laughs> for the opportunity to meet with Sven, I know there are so many others that would love the opportunity, and I just feel grateful. Smiley face with sunglasses. Not to sound cliche, but it was truly a game changer and has propelled me into some serious change. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Signed, Beth from Texas. How about that? That's awesome, Beth. Thank you for writing in. Um, and I want to say that uh, we consider ourselves privileged to be able to help and provide some comfort and some solace and some inspiration and some thoughts for you to uh, bounce around in your own self as you work on your own soul. And we're doing soul work here. That's what this is. We're going deep. And we've got a, real, a couple of really interesting people today. And our first one, I love it. Our, our first New Zealander. I'm really excited. Rob, tell us about Jess. Here we go, Sven. This is what she wrote to us. I'm Jess, 29, from New Zealand, and I've been listening to your podcast for a few weeks now, and I am obsessed. I think you're an absolute legend. A lot of the stories I've listened to on your show have resonated with me, but I also feel like I'm being soft because my story is nowhere near as bad as some of the rest. I've been to multiple therapy sessions with different people, tried somatic release, and even delved into psilocybin to try and help me. I bought There's a Hole in My Love Cup, and I am slowly working through it. There's been a lot of pain come up over the first couple of chapters, which felt great to release, but I have gotten to the chapters about core beliefs and when I first remembered being unhappy. This is where my memory kind of stops. At 14, I was sexually abused by my 18-year-old boyfriend for many months without knowing it was abuse. This is what made me go to therapy. During the therapy, my psychiatrist diagnosed me with autism and ADHD. As she noticed traits during the therapy that validated a lot of my feelings and has helped me understand myself more. I'm still left feeling that the unhappiness started before I was 14, but I cannot for the life of me think when it happened or what caused it. My father has had serious mental health issues during my whole life, and I assume this contributed a lot to my childhood, but don't remember too many specifics and at what age I stopped twirling. I am not that happy, I am unmotivated, and I feel I have so much potential, but I need to get unstuck. Any advice would be much appreciated. Love your work. Jess, great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure is completely ours, completely ours. You want to dive right in? Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Nervous, but I'm ready. Oh, don't be nervous. It'll be okay. One of the first things you said is, but I feel like I'm being soft because my story is nowhere near as bad as some of the rest. Uh, tell me a little bit what you mean by that. Um, I think it's the stories kind of, especially from your show, um, hearing them, they just, they sound awful really. And how people get through that amazes me. Mm. And I, yeah, I feel that mine, maybe I shouldn't really be complaining because it's not too bad or I should, I should be happy because I haven't had it that rough. I suppose. I, I get that logic. I hear what you're saying. You were sexually abused at age 14. Now, I know a whole lot of people listening to my show right now that say, oh my God, that's horrible. That a, that a child, basically. And, you know, when you get to be your age, 29, or my age, 55, or Rob's age. Easy now. Okay. Or Rob's age, uh, you realize how young 14 is and how innocent it is. Yeah. And you were, you were sexually abused at that age. And I don't 
think there's a person listening who thinks you're soft because of pain surrounding that and having had that experience and then potentially also other stuff in your childhood, which we're going to get to. So I need you to know from me, from my perspective, it's not soft and uh, to be to feel the effects and to feel the pain of that sort of thing is not soft at all. In fact, it's allowing it to be what it is. It's allowing it to be real and to feel it and to allow it to come up and out. It's when we stuff it down and say, oh, it's no big deal and stuff it down and stuff it down. That's when it does its most damage. So I need you to know that I, I understand that you feel that way and I'm not trying to invalidate your feelings of feeling soft, but it's not soft. It's it's not. It's not what was done with uh, horrible. So this happened when you were 14 um, and you said, you know, this is, is sort of where your memory kind of stops. Your memory going backwards stops. So you have memories after 14, but not before 14. Is that what you're saying? Yes, but even my memories after 14 are pretty vague. I have a very bad time sort of remembering times of things and what age I was. Mm -hmm. But before about then, I have yeah, not many memories and I don't know when they were. And would you say that that is the, the, and maybe there's something else, was that the most pivotal event of your life, of your childhood, the most uh, seminal event or the most significant event or were there others? What do you recall? I think there's, that's my top three. And I have two other memories that when I think about bring up a lot of emotional charge. And what are those other two, if you don't mind my asking? So I had a a very best friend when I was young. Again, I'm not sure what age, um, but quite young. And she would ignore me for days without saying why. Um, I mean, that would obviously leave me very confused because um, she was my only friend at the time. Mm. Approximately, if you were to if you were to spitball it, just take a shot at it. How old do you think you might have been? Was it at fourteen? Was it uh, like just like a couple years before that, or was it like when you were three? Just if you were to sort of ballpark it. I know we were friends from about three years old. Okay. I don't know when that behavior started, but I believe I would have been younger than ten. Okay, so we'll just we'll just say roughly three to ten. Yes. Okay, and then uh, what was the third sort of top uh, traumatic memory of your childhood? The sexual abuse at fourteen, your best friend ignoring you somewhere between three and ten, uh, with some regularity and and confusion, not knowing why. And then what was the third thing? When I was young, well, throughout my whole life, really, but it started when I was young. My father had a lot of anger issues. Um, and I recall episodes of just screaming um, at just in frustration and throwing things, um, either screaming at my mum, but never at me or my brother. Interesting. If you were to just guess, why do you think it was never at you or your brother? I think because my mum would take it herself. Mm. And we were often very quiet and would make ourselves small, I suppose. Of course you did. And why do you think mm. why do you think it is that you made yourself small? To get away, avoid the conflict. Exactly. Exactly. And you said from young. What ages would you guess? Or are you saying it was likely there the whole time? Or, or what's your guess? I'm going to say it was likely there the whole time. But yeah, again, the memories that I, I can remember, distinct memories, but they... I have no idea when they happened. And what's one distinct memory that you recall? We were out on the boat, and he's a boat mechanic, and the boat motor stopped, and he couldn't fix it. And he was just screaming and throwing tools and telling my mum she was a fucking idiot. Wow. Um, just in her screaming in her face, and I just remember being terrified. Wow, of course you were. And and that actually was going to be my next question. What did it feel like to have a dad that had anger issues and was constantly yelling and, you know, unleashing on your mom? I mean, the bo the boat breaks down, the motor breaks down. He's the mechanic and he blames her. Calls her the fucking idiot. Yeah, I think cuz she was trying to help potentially calm him down and saying it wasn't that bad and that was more 
the fucking idiot part. <laughs> right, which is still nonsensical because she's trying to help. And, no. Right, right, right. Yeah. How did it feel to have a dad who was constantly raging and a mom who was sort of eating his wrath and always trying to placate him, and, and but he was just constantly angry or very frequently angry or explosive, however you would characterize it. How did it feel? Um, scary. It, kind of, it was normal as well. It was just part of, I didn't know that wasn't normal as well, right. but I was scared. Right. Of course you were. Um, let me ask you this question. So what percentage of the time in your own home, in your own family life, did you live in fear? 65. Okay. And is it, was it a situation where it could explode at any time or were there patterns or were you always walking on eggshells or how would you sort of characterize it? Um, there were patterns and it was usually around work related mechanic things. So I would avoid the workshop at home because mm. that's where the yelling would be. So he'd get frustrated, uh, obviously, when he's doing his work, then he'd start yelling. And his favorite sort of shit stick, as the saying goes, or the person that he would unleash on most would be mom then. Yes. Either he would just yell randomly or he would find his favorite person to yell at and she would take it. And her, we, you've already sort of indicated her MO, her way of operating was to attempt to calm him down. Is that correct? Yes. Is it reasonable to assume that there was always this sort of underlying current inside of you that he could go off at, at any time? I mean, yes, avoid the workshop, but there was always just this sort of knowing that it could explode at any time, or was it not like that? No, it was definitely eggshells. Okay. So yep. you, you basically, in the one place in life where you were supposed to feel safe and secure and be able to relax and feel comfortable and at ease, your home... You couldn't ever really, un unless he was gone, I'm guessing. Yeah. Right. Uh, just out of curiosity, are your parents still married today? They still in your life? Yes. Got it. So you, you grew up feeling afraid in your own home. Yes. Is it reasonable to assume that that living in fear, while it seemed normal, because it just seems normal, right? Is it reasonable to assume that that, permeated then the rest of your life? Or did you not feel a sense of always being afraid uh, in school or with friends or when you were dating? How much of that fear permeated the rest of your life? I don't recall it really permeating. It's only now that I've made that connection. Mm. But at the time, it was normal. Mm. You said you tried to make yourself small at home and avoid the conflicts uh, how much of your life outside of the home have you stayed small or have you felt comfortable more expanding yourself and being more out there and giving your opinion and, and uh, being more gregarious in life? No, I'm definitely a small human. <laughs> okay. And just out of curiosity, are you physically small as well? I mean, or you mean it more in, in your spirit? No, in my spirit, I'm... I'm quiet. I was always the good, the good kid growing up. Was that sort of an adaptive uh, method to avoid conflict, to not come under anyone's fire? Well, potentially thinking about it now, probably, but I just thought I was shy. Hmm. And is it possible looking back, I mean, you say that I was just shy and uh, you know, I've, I've sort of always been a small person or I've, I've receded is it possible that that was all conditioned, that you did it all as a way to avoid the conflict, as a way to not have the wrath turned on you, as a way to make yourself feel safe, sort of curl up in a ball over here so that I'm safe, so that I won't get hurt? Is, is it possible that some of your personality or potentially a significant portion is an adaptation to that, that rage in your home? Yeah, that's highly possible. Hmm. I see. In your relationships with friends or lovers or intimates, do you tend to play small there as well? Yes. And what's the fear? I think losing people if I have an opinion that might differ or... Right. The fear that if I show who I really am or what I really think or, ouch, you hurt my feelings, you know, or that didn't feel good. If I say anything that expresses my truth, 
you may not like me and you may walk away. Yes. So I have to keep making it all about you and just be whoever I got to be, sort of read you, you know, with I have cameras constantly going, reading you as to what you might want so that you won't leave me. Is that somewhat accurate? Yeah, that's definitely accurate. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it sounds like, in a way, that's what you were conditioned to do growing up that you were constantly reading the room. You became an expert at reading people. You became an expert. When you're walking on eggshells, you're reading. When I talk about in the book, you've read the book. When I talk about how we sort of metaphorically, we grow those cameras around us and that's constantly viewing other people, everyone around us to see what they might want, what they might respond favorably to, what might cause them to give me love or at the very least, uh, keep me out of trouble with that person. Um, and then we also have cameras on ourselves, constantly monitoring ourselves. And it builds in this very, very, very high sense of self-consciousness and like a fear of being our real self. You said in your work um, that you've done in reading the book and so on and so forth, you said that you sort of gotten stuck. The first few chapters really helped you out. And then you got stuck. What do you think it is that you got stuck with or what do you think stopped or what do you think's hindering you? I mean, because you've given a lot of memories. You said you've forgotten so much of your childhood, yet you you indicate three significant memories here. And I'd be willing to bet if I asked you for three more significant traumas that you remember from your childhood, I'll bet you could list them. I bet if I pushed you, you might have three more because right off the top of your head, you said, well, there's that one time on the boat. But then later you said, and I knew to stay away from dad's mechanic shop. So there we got two. And I'll bet I could ask you for another one. And I'd say, well, what about, was there ever a time at dinner? And you'd be like, oh, well, shit. Yeah, there was that one time. And, you know, dad was blah, blah, blah. You know, mom, whatever, overcooked the roast, whatever. So you really have a good memory. But I guess what I'm wondering is, uh, what are you stuck on? What do you think? You, you were making some progress with the book, with my book. And um, and then you sort of got stuck or or you sort of regressed or something. What do you think it is? It's pinpointing what exactly it was or if it was a combination of all of these things that, you know, I don't want to focus on one thing and miss others or focus too much on everything and get into a spiral of lots of things. Yeah, that I'm like stuck on. I, I think it, yeah, that's the chapter when you stop twirling. There's just a lot of memories, but I want to pinpoint the big ones, if that makes sense. Well, now, isn't you know, it makes total sense. That makes total sense. But isn't it interesting what you just said? Because earlier uh, you said, you know, in your write-up for us, you basically said, you know, I don't have a lot of memories. And right now you said, I'm reading, I was reading the chapter on twirling. And for our listeners who don't know what the hell we're talking about, when, when Jess and I are talking about twirling, there's a chapter in there where I talk about how we come out of the womb and I tell a little story there about my daughter and we come out of the womb basically twirling. No child comes out of the womb hating themselves. Okay, so that's what we're referring to. But you said in your write-up, I don't have a lot of memories. And right now you said, when you read the chapter on twirling, so many memories came up. And you didn't want to sort of get bogged down by all the memories. I wanted to pinpoint, blah, blah, blah. So you little sneak, you little sneak. I knew there are a lot of memories in there. All right. <laughs> so that is, so is, is the, is the stuck, is it that I don't know? Is it a strategy thing? I don't know if I should address all of the memories or if I should drill down and just try to find the most important one. Or is it not a strategy thing? What is it that's causing the stuck? Or are you feeling overwhelmed by all the memories? Or what really, pinpoint it in one sentence or less, what really is the issue that you're struggling with? Because you said you got a good jump on your self-growth with the with the book and so forth, and then you just sort of got stuck. Uh, pinpoint it, if you would. I think now you say that I'm overwhelmed because there's a lot of memories and I get frustrated that I can't pinpoint when they happened. Why is the when so important? Because it's almost like you're avoiding not wanting to touch the memories, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. And what I'm wanting to understand is why is the when so important to you? And I'm a big believer in when, but I'm just curious why the when is so important or why that is what's causing you to not want to dive in or causing you to feel stuck. I think because I, I feel like I should know and that if I don't know that I'm lying about uh -oh. it. Oh, See, now there we go. Now we're getting down to another issue, and I talk about this in the book as well, where when there's an antagonistic voice or a critical voice in childhood, it conditions the child. The harm that it does to the child is it conditions the child to not trust their own voice. 
to not trust their own memory, right? And to not trust their own memory and to not trust themselves and to not believe in themselves. And that dovetails with what you were saying about your lover. When you have a lover, when you have a friend, you don't trust in yourself. You don't believe in your own worth. And so you keep it hidden. So A, I don't trust my voice, but B, I don't really like who I am because if I liked who I am, I'd feel comfortable putting it out there. But you've been taught to dislike yourself and distrust yourself. So you don't put yourself out there. And when you have a memory, you don't trust it. I'm going to just encourage you because now you've indicated you have lots of memories. And this is actually really interesting, Jess, because I see this a lot with a lot of clients is that people will say, well, I don't have a lot of memories or I don't remember my childhood. And a lot of times the child's brain will shut down because there's so much pain and there's so much fear that as a self-protection mechanism, the child's brain just shuts down and stops remembering stuff because it'd be too painful to remember, which is this beautiful, you know, adaptive thing in the human animal. But when I poke a little bit, prod a little bit, pull on this thread over here and pull on that thread over here, all of a sudden, it's all right there. It's all right there. As you yourself have said, I have so many memories. Okay, so if it's, a, if it's it is, it can be overwhelming. And all I'm recommending that you do, Jess, is start with any of them, one by one, but and, and just start to journal on those and start to go into each one. Because what I eventually did in my own personal work, and as you know, all of my work comes from my own life. Every single exercise in my book, every single thing that I recommend to someone, I've worked in my own life as well as over 30 years of counseling, all right? And so what I did was I went back and I scoured every single memory that I had that had any sort of emotional charge. I just started, I, I actually made took a piece of paper and I just started bullet pointing every memory that I had that had any sort of emotional charge. And then after each memory, I you know did multiple bullet points of what the feeling was that I associated with that memory or feelings. And then I began journaling on those and releasing on those using the Sedona technique and a few other techniques. But the most critical thing for you and your work, because you're not someone who needs to get started. You've already dived in. You already know some of the good feeling from feeling the growth and doing the self-work. So I applaud you for that. You're just, you've gotten stuck and that's understandable. The most important thing that you need to understand, Jess, in your, where you're at in your work, and this is applicable to other clients and, and listeners, you have to understand, you have to begin, just begin to believe that your memory is perfect, that your memories are real. Even if you don't have the exact date, like today, you told me, well, sexual abuse 14, what were the ages your best friend ignored you? You said somewhere between, I asked you a pinpoint. Well, I know I was at three and then I probably till 10. Great, three to 10, good, boom, done. Who gives a shit if it's eight and a half or seven and three quarters? Eight, three to 10, beautiful. Now let the memory out. And then what you may discover is as you begin to let that memory out and journaling about it and talking about it with yourself and using, like I said, some of the other techniques, writing a letter to your best friend, why did you leave me? That you, A letter you never send. Mm-hmm. And writing it out, you may find that it jars open or breaks open some of those dates. But it's trusting your memory. You don't have to prove it. Part of the reason we want to know the when is so that I can prove it. Oh, yes, this memory is real. And I remember, and I was at that building, and I was in fourth grade, and you don't have to. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It's in there. Trust your own memory. Begin to trust in your own voice and allow those to come out more and more because the more you process those, Jess, and trust your own voice, the more that's going to come up and you're going to be able to purge that stuff out more. In the, in the little bit of time we have left, I want to ask you, what is the single biggest question that you're most uh, wrestling with in your life right now or after uh, our conversation today? What are you thinking? What are you still stuck on or wondering about? I'm wondering if one will the, this kind of unhappiness and unsettledness go away and is my childhood what caused it? Yes, yes. Uh, to the second question, yes, it is your childhood that caused it. Everything else became patternized out of that childhood. Your fear of speaking out, your living small is a direct result. We've pinpointed the sexual abuse that happens at 14 is horrible and you can keep processing that and you need to. All right. And you may even want to consider getting in a group for that, or, or if you already have a therapist you're working on, but the real, even 
bigger shit, so to speak, so to speak. I don't mean to be, a, you know, to offend or minimize what happened to you at 14. But the, the power of parental imprinting sets the patterns for life. And so to change my relationships now requires going into that childhood and allowing those memories, opening up that vault that you've been putting all the deposits in of all those memories and all the feelings that went with them, opening up that vault and beginning to pull them out one by one and flushing them out, just like you've already done in the opening chapters of the book. But it's doing it more, each of those memories and decharging those memories. The happiness is underneath. Your authentic self is underneath. All of that pain and fear and the bullshit beliefs you were taught about yourself, like you're small. I mean, that's become your identifier. I'm shy. What if you weren't shy? What if you never were shy? What if your authentic self, your original self was actually quite gregarious, but you became shy as a way to survive? You became shy as a way to not be hurt. What if you are actually naturally this rather boisterous, loud person? And, and you aren't even aware of it. I mean, it, I, I know it seems insane, but what if you were to unpack all of this? And the truth is, the more you unpack, the more you flush out, you're going to feel literally physically lighter. You're going to begin to have greater clarity. You're going to begin to have a greater sense of self and feeling great about yourself and a sense of strength. Will the happiness go away? Yes, I guarantee it. As a matter of absolute fact, I have nine inch scars running up my forearms. I was in a suicidal depression for 12 years and I got myself out of it with these exact things that I'm teaching you and everyone else. This shit works. It's just, you want to get happy. If I always tell people, if you never remember another thing that I say, just do this one thing. And that is flush out the pain, the fears, and the bullshit beliefs you were taught about yourself. You do that one thing and the happiness and the clarity and the greater sense of peace and power I guarantee, I guarantee it will happen. One last question. What chapter are you on in the book, Jess? Well, the chapter ending with the twirling. Um, is that roughly I, midway? Is that, I, I don't know it off the top of my head. Is about it? 18% of the way. Oh, great. You've got plenty more to do. And the truth is, in, there's no rush to go through, but just keep every memory you have, flush it out, write a letter, write a letter to your dad that you don't send. And in that letter, perhaps consider unlocking all of your feelings towards him that you don't send. He'll never get it. The rage, the anger, the sadness, the fear, unleash it all on him and also on your mom, whatever it might be, you might be feeling towards her, but keep going in the book and it's going to challenge you. But every single one of those memories is significant. Every single one needs to be flushed out. I guarantee, Jess, I guarantee if you continue to flush out, to give words to your pain, fears, and bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself, if you do that, the happiness effortlessly, effortlessly rises up from within. You will see the change. I guarantee it. I want you to stay in touch with the show, Jess, and uh, as you progress through the book with our producers, and, and they'll keep me informed because I think you're on a great track. Just got to keep doing the work. Keep doing the work. You're doing great. Thank you. That gives me a bit of hope. <laughs> no, absolutely. There's huge hope, Jess. I'm telling you, there is huge hope. If you just keep on the course of doing the work, it's going to be great. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jess. Thank you so much for having me. It's been cool. It's wonderful. And I know it's about three in the morning in New Zealand. So go to sleep, go. Or if, you, or if you're so <laughs> yeah. worked up, go get your journal and journal and then fall asleep effortlessly. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Good night. After this short break, we'll be back with my next guest here on the Badass Counseling Show. My best friend made me listen to some podcast, said it had blown her away. So we listened to a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show together. All I can say is, wow, first podcast I had ever listened to. Now it's my addiction. If you haven't done it yet, you need to subscribe to the Badass Counseling Show. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. We are back. And wow, uh, it was so neat uh, talking with Jess, Rob. It was really neat uh, how she opened. Just like I feel... 
you know, I hear all these people with all these huge problems on your show, Sven, and I feel like mine aren't important. I feel soft and so forth. That was really interesting. She was wrong about it not being significant or important. Exactly. That's for certain. And, you know, it's a poor carpenter who blames his tools, and worse, if he blames his spouse. That was just horrifying. Exactly. Totally agree. And then your children live in terror, and ugh, that's and that's a good point. I, I never heard that about a carpenter. That's interesting. Really? Oh, well, I'll give you some more adages as we go along. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I'm a guy who can fix nothing. I, I don't blame my tools. I blame myself because I'm an idiot when it comes to fixing things. So it's working. It's working. <laughs> so next we have Faith. Rob, tell us about Faith, please. Okay. Faith said, my 23-year-old son is the failure to launch in the basement playing video games, smoking pot kid. I try to support anything he wants to do. He could go to school and not work or work anywhere. He will lie about having a job. He doesn't even shower. I sent him numbers for therapists. Sent your book. I don't know what to do. I don't know if kicking him out is right, but I have. And my mother takes him in and everything stays the same there. If you have any advice, I would really appreciate it. Faith, thanks for coming on the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Pleasure is ours. Faith, so tell me, what for you in this failure to launch sort of uh, state that your son is in and that you're struggling with, what is the hardest part of it for you? What's the real struggle for you? He, he, he worries me. I feel like he's, you know, into a depression. Um, I just, I just don't know how to help him. You feel you can't help him in terms of the depression and the state that he's in sort of internally and how, or is it that you feel you can't help him to sort of get his life going and get a career or get a job and sort of uh, get going actively? In other words, is it about what's going on inside of him that concerns you most or what's going on sort of outside of him that he's not creating a productive life? Let me ask it this way. What percent for you, for what you struggle with most about your son, what percent is his inner stuff and what percent is your greatest fear his outer stuff. Is it 60, 40, 20, 90, or 20, 80? What's, what are the percentages? Probably 70, 30, 70 being his internal, um, afraid that, you know, he might would commit suicide or something like that. And you say you, uh, sort of kicked him out once and he went and lived with your mother and didn't change. Um, why did he stop living with your mother? What happened there? Well, he's still living with her. Um, but he's not doing anything. He just stays in the basement all the time. And, you know, she's not happy with it. So instead of saying something to him, she's calling me and telling me I need to bring him back and all this. And, and I would, but I, I don't know what to do that's best for him. Mm -hmm. You know, keeping, allowing him to just do nothing kind of feels like I'm not, that's not benefiting him. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to, before I give you the question, I want you to short circuit, let's short circuit the idea that you, whatever you say has to lead to an action. So often when we say things in life, we think, oh, well, I said it, now I got to act on it. Or if someone is telling us something, you know, your best friend, it's like, well, then act on it. There's always that expectation of action, but let's short circuit the action part. So I want to ask you a question where you just give me the answer, knowing that there's no expectation that you have to act on it. I don't give two shits if you act on it or not. I just want to hear the answer, okay? In this situation with your son, again, you don't have to act on it, Faith, all right? In this situation with your son, what do you most want to do? Not what do you want to see happen. Sure, you want to see him just sort of get out of it and get on with his life. That's what you want to happen. But you can't control that. I'm saying, what do you most want to do yourself? What do you most want to do in this situation? I keep debating on, like, I want him to come home. And I guess I kind of help him. But I've tried that. What is a part of you? Even You may even feel bad about feeling it. What do you really, at times, want to do? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, let me ask you this question. Well, no, actually, I'm going to push you a little bit. You said you don't know. I want you to take a swing at it anyway. You can change your mind tomorrow. What do you most want to do in this situation, Faith? Your mom doesn't want him living there anymore. When he comes at your place, he's already done that, and it, nothing changes. What do you want to do? And again, you don't have to do it. I'm just curious what it is you want to do. 
I mean, I want to bring him back home, but then I want him to be kicked out. I want him to suffer a little bit. I want him to uh, wake up. I don't know. Kicked out, suffer, wake up. Right. And I appreciate your honesty. I had a feeling that was in there. Let me ask you this question. Why was that so hard to answer? <sighs> because I can't even imagine doing it, really. Uh, even though I kicked him out. I Why? Why, why is that? And I'm not pushing you. I want to know why. You do not have to do this, but I want you to tell me why you can't imagine doing it. He doesn't have anywhere to go, and I can't imagine him, you know, living under a bridge like his father did for 10 years, and it scares me. It does. It is scary. And for any parent who can resonate with Faith's issue here, I think a whole lot of us can. There are people who have uh, children who are in some form of addiction, people who have children who are in some form of a bad relationship that the parent sees, people who have children with a mental illness, and we see the child slipping into it more and more, or the adult child, and you feel so helpless, and you don't know what to do. Faith, what you are talking about resonates with so many of our listeners. I, I can't even tell you how grateful I am that you came onto the show. I really can't because you are speaking a truth to so many hearts today. And so you can't imagine, a part of you wants to kick him out, wants to make him suffer a bit. And I know you don't mean like in some cruel way, but you know, sort of that life education way, you know, that, you know, yes. living, living tight and living sort of bare to the bone, you know? And um, so I, I get that. It sounds like though, well, shoot, I don't want to do that because I feel like, there's always the fear of, you know, will he kill himself? As your, you said, your mom indicated that, the fear of that. And you don't want to see him living under a bridge and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's interesting you say that, Faith, because one of the things that is the biggest fear for parents of someone who's addicted or in a bad relationship or uh, mental illness or situations such as yours, the fear that they'll kill themselves. It's, it's interesting that the brain goes to, worst case scenario, which doesn't seem that far-fetched right? for you, right? I mean, you said you said his father lived under a bridge for 10 years, and, and so it, it doesn't seem that far-fetched when you see someone so down and depressed and they're not even showering and, and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And so let me ask you this. What percentage of you, and I know it sounds silly to attach a percentage to it, but what percent, if you were to be totally honest, do you want to bring him back into your home? If you were to be totally honest, is it 89%? Is it 3%? 27? What is it? I feel like it's kind of 50-50 and that's why I'm kind of, I keep going back and forth. Okay. And let me ask you this then, 50-50, that's a fair answer. Makes total sense. Appreciate it. What is your single biggest fear? If you bring him back into your home, what is your single biggest fear? Um, that he will still be in the same depression and that, you know, he might do it still. And he by might. do it, you mean kill himself? Yes. Okay. So the biggest fear is that he won't change and he'll kill himself. And let me ask you this then, what is this? Well, really you have three options, bring him back, leave him at your mom's or throw him out. Or is mom saying, no, it's no longer an option for him to stay here? She said she won't put him out um, and have him live on the streets. Um, but she's told me that then I could come put him out. <laughs> I gotcha. Okay, fair. So there are three options then. So he yeah. can still keep living there. Um, but I don't think she would stick with it. With what? Allowing him to with stay there? With him being gone. No, she won't stick with if he comes, if I go there and kick him out, she, you know, she's going to take him right back in. Okay. And let me ask you this then. So if let's just say you allow him back into your home, live for, you know, maybe you say to him, listen, in six months, I'm just choosing a random number. In six months, you're moving out. You're, you're not going to live here anymore. You need to get a job and find, you know, rent a room. I personally, I rented rooms, you know, uh, from people all the time. I, you know, plenty of times I didn't have in my own apartment. It's just easier. I could save money and whatever. Yeah. Um, so you've got six months, son. Again, random date. You don't have to go with that. Uh, you've got six months and then you're out. You believe that after that six months, he would just go live with your mom because she doesn't have, she wouldn't be able to say no to him. 
Yeah, because that's actually happened before. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, then let me ask you, your fear in bringing him back home is that he won't change and that he'll commit suicide. What is your single biggest fear in him staying with grandma? The same. Same. So he won't change and suicide. All right. How much stick to or whatever does grandma have? How long could she tolerate him living there? Indefinitely or what? I honestly don't know, um, but she has other grandchildren there. <laughs> and so far it's been years. Years. And she had, wow. Yeah. Wow. My sister's kids, she has them there too. Um, but they have children. So that might be why she's done it so long. But yeah, she's. So wait, 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 wait. Just so I'm clear. Your sister's kids live with grandma as well. And your sister's kids have children of their own. Yes. Hey, just out of curiosity, why are everyone's kids living with grandma? Well, my sister never really had a stable place. And I think that she feels guilty of the struggle that they, they've had with my sister. Your mom feels yes. guilty. Okay. So for me, it's kind of like, okay, but you have a house. Like, you know, you can keep your child. <laughs> it's, it's not the point of it, you know. Of course I could keep him. Right. Uh, let me ask you, uh, how much judgment do you feel from your mother or your siblings or anyone regarding your parenting of your son or your son living at your grandmother's house? How much judgment do you feel? A whole lot. From who primarily? Lot. Who's the main critic of you and your parenting? My mother. Oh. Oh. So your son is living with her and she's happy to bitch to you about your shitty parenting. Is that it? Yes. Wow. And her main, if you were to sum it up in one sentence, what is her main uh, gripe to you about your parenting? Um, she has said that I didn't teach them how to survive on their own. So that's why he's in the place that he's in. You're fundamentally confronted with a choice then. The choice of your son being out on the street really is not even a real, a real choice. There's it sounds like there's zero chance of that happening because he's either going to live with you or he's going to live with her. He's not going to go on the street. She's not going to kick him out on the street. So isn't that really a choice between living with you or living with her? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, if if even if I went over there and he was out for a day, like she would definitely bring him back in. Okay, so then let me ask, and this is going to sound like a fucking stupid question, uh, but it's an honest question, all right? It's an honest question. What's the problem for you? He's got a roof over his head. He's got food. Um, he's now, how old is he? He's 23, okay? So what for you is the hardest part? If you know he's got a roof over his head, you know he's got food and clothes on his back and running water and a, a bathroom that he can use, what is the problem? And I'm not being a jerk by asking. It's just an honest question. Yeah. I don't see him happy. Right, I mean, he just seems to be surviving. What's the nature know? of your relationship with him? We always were close. We don't talk as much now. And part of that has to do with me not wanting to go over there and see my mother. Sure. Because uh -huh. we're fighting about this whole thing. But yeah, we all we always bonded over, you know, watching comedians and music. And we used to talk a whole lot. And when did it stop? When did the closeness stop? Two years ago? Um, eight years ago? When did it stop? Probably about two to three years ago. And why two to three years ago? Why not six years ago? Why not uh, a month and a half ago? Why two to three years ago? What happened? Me getting on to him about, you know, just working or going to school or, you know, just doing something. And then he started lying to me. And so when when he started lying, he I know he felt bad about it. He would tell me that. But we just started talking less and less. If I'm hearing you correctly, that your relationship with your son changed from closeness to less closeness when you started pushing him. Yeah. I get it. And I'm not dogging you for pushing him. And, you know, we all make decisions as parents and so on and so forth. And I understand the position that you are in. I do. If you were to go back three years, rewind the tape, how would you play your hand differently? Or maybe you wouldn't. And that's that's great too. It's totally up to you. Would you play your hand differently if you could rewind the tape two to three years, recognizing that it, you know, 
sort of cost you the closeness or do you feel like I don't care that it cost me the closeness? It's fine. He needed to be pushed or where are you at looking backward? You know, he's always kind of struggled a lot and there's a lot I would change if I went back way farther than that. <laughs> What's the single biggest thing in your relationship that you would change about you, about what you did or didn't do? Single biggest thing, even going way back. Actually, I want to hear two answers. Single biggest thing you would change from two to three years ago and single biggest thing you would change from way back about you, what you did or didn't do. Um, two to three years ago, I don't know what I could have done different. I just don't feel like it benefits him to just let him do nothing. Okay. If I was to go way back, um, I feel like, you know, one of the big mistakes I, me and my husband, I think both made was not, you know, and I learned this from you, <laughs> is not um, letting them have a voice. You know, their stepfather was kind of um, drill sergeant-ish. And is he still that way? Yes. And are you and your husband married still? Yes. Okay. So if he comes back home, then he's subjected to your husband's drill sergeant-ish voice. And you sort of, if I'm hearing you correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, you sort of turned over to, you know, in your son's mind, perhaps, the dark side of the force, and you became like your husband, where you had been a place of somewhat comfort and solace and someone he could talk to, uh, two to three years ago, you sort of started singing your husband's tune. And so now your son is feeling attacked from both sides, right? Yeah, I think you're right. Yes. Okay. One of the things, um, and that really helps me fill out the picture. And, you know, you, you say going back, we, I would have helped him find his own voice. How much of your stance with your son, uh, two to three years ago, when you sort of started singing a different tune, how much of that was triggered by you feeling pressure from your husband or was it just you thought it would be a good idea or was it you're feeling it from your mom? Why did you change your tune? Why? And I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm not uh -huh. saying you shouldn't. I'm just wondering what the trigger was in you because you had a 20-year pattern of behavior with your son up to that point. And he hits 20, 21, somewhere in there. And all of a sudden, you totally shift or significantly shift your pattern of behavior. And I'm curious, what triggered you to shift your pattern of behavior? I Part of it was his age. You know, I didn't... I wanted to see him just be out there trying to figure something out. He can't move anywhere in life if he's just doing nothing. Yeah, but that but, wasn't the first time you had thought that. Come on, you had had yes. that thought when he was 18 or when he was 16 <laughs> or when he was 19. Why did you all of a sudden start speaking? And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't have. I'm just curious, why then? What triggered you? Um, a, a lot of it was pressure from my husband. There it is. There it is. Yeah. So then you start, you're feeling pressure from your husband. And so you start coming down on him. And uh, now all of a sudden your son can't trust you. It used to be that he could trust you as a safe space, as someone who would listen and try to understand him. And now he didn't feel safe with you either. So the one thing that kids have the power to do, well, two things, but the one thing they have the power to do is to shut down, is to do nothing. When they feel yeah. pressured, when they feel pressured, when they feel criticized and pressured, and your voice doesn't matter, just go out and get a fucking job. One of the things they have the pressure to do is just say, no, no. Yeah. And the other thing that they have the power to do is to destroy their own life. Well, fuck you. You want to pressure me? Fuck it. You know what? I'm just going to take, and that for many people, not all, but for many people with suicide, it's... Fuck you. I'm going to hurt you in the way I can hurt you the very most for all the fucking pain and pressure and bullshit you've put on me. I'm going to destroy me and that'll be my ultimate fuck you to you. I'm going to take myself down because I know it'll fucking destroy you, old man or old lady or whatever. Or maybe it was a grandma that raised him or a grandfather or an uncle, whomever. And I'm not saying your son is at that point. But I'm saying when someone has their voice stolen from them, oftentimes all they can do is shut down and say no. And so what's really going on here, is, to some degree, is a sort of proxy battle, a battle for ownership of the company. And the company is your son's life. That's the company. That's the entity. And you guys are wanting to control that, both you and your husband, because you sort of, you stopped being Switzerland. You stopped being this neutral player and you jumped over to the, you know, what your son likely sees as the aggressor. Yeah. 
And so now it's a battle between you guys and him. And he will likely stay shut down until you guys either back off or until he gets sick of feeling shut down. And he gets sick of just playing video games. And I've counseled enough people, enough young people to know that that gets old too. Social media gets old too. They see their friends or they see people they know moving on with life and they see themselves just sitting in that basement and they get sick of it. You know, there are some drugs, if you take them enough, they don't get you high anymore or they don't numb you anymore, right? Well, excessive anything. It's not just gaming. I have no beef with gaming. Excessive working, excessive parenting, excessive fitness or gambling or anything, eventually it loses its capacity to sort of numb us. And we take it to higher and higher in heights and it still doesn't work anymore. And so that's one way that he comes out of it. But I really don't see, and I could be wrong, I don't see the pressure thing working with your son at all. Yeah, you're right. It's not. You're asking me, so I'm going to tell you my thoughts on this. And my thoughts are, the son needs someone to love him and accept him and help him find his own voice. And all you have to do is love him. All you have to do is say, son, I love you. And I'm sorry for pressuring you. Yeah, part of me, if, and be honest with him. You can be honest. Part of me wants you to you know, get loaded and get going and so on. But you know what? In the end, I realized that I contributed to robbing you of your own voice. I mean, wow, what a fucking powerful conversation as a 23-year-old to hear that from a parent. Because you just told it to me. You're the one that admitted it's true. I didn't shove that shit down your throat. You said it. Yeah. Wow. To be a kid and have your parents say that, I robbed you of your voice. I contributed to. Or I didn't stop it when your father was, you know, whatever. I am hugely to blame. And when you are ready, son, If you want my help, I'm willing to support you in finding your own voice. But, and then in the meantime, just loving them. Just tell them, I love you. I'm sorry for pressuring you. You know, I here's why I did it, but it wasn't right. And you need to just find your own voice. Give them some safe space, right? Yeah. But that puts you in a real shitty spot, doesn't it? Yeah. Because now all of a sudden, the team of you and your husband now have like, differing methods here. And so you're putting a real shit spot, aren't you? Because now it's like, well, how do I justify that to my husband who has the drill sergeant mentality? Let me ask you, what would be the hardest part for you personally about being that source of love again and encouragement in your son's life? How much flack would you come under from the drill sergeant? Um, quite a bit. Yeah. And so you're really having to choose, aren't you? Yeah. Just like you had to do two to three years ago, you're in the spot of having to choose between your son and your husband to some degree. I mean, it's not an ultimate choice of, you know, one of them, but I mean, there's a lot of that in there, isn't it? That's got to be just ripping at your soul, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And in one sentence or less, what's the hardest part about that? About that sort of terror between father and son and you're in the middle and and you can see the value in each opinion but you have this thing you kind of see that I could help my son if I just gave him some space but I feel I'm under so much heat from my husband what's the hardest part about being in that spot that heart-wrenching spot that you are in right now what's the hardest part about it I don't know um or what's the saddest part I guess standing up and having my own voice (laughs) right And isn't that interesting that you have basically modeled for your son and your son is now taking into the next generation the very thing that you are afflicted with, that I don't have a voice. Yeah. Right. How does that, how does that feel? It's sad. I, I was so determined to not make the same mistakes my mother did. And I, I did exactly what she did. And what's interesting is until we get those sources of pain from our own childhood out of us, it's not enough to simply commit with willpower. Well, I'm, I'm going to be different. I'm going to do it different. You had good intentions. I'm not disputing that. But until we actually get our own pain out and identify those sources of the problem, that shit still infects our parenting. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? It is. And so here you are. You're How old are you? Roughly. Uh, 42. 42. You got a 23-year-old son and he's in the exact same shit you've been in your whole fucking life. No voice. Yeah. Yeah. The way to heal your son is heal yourself. 
go in. And I'm working on it. <laughs> I bet you are. I bet you are. And the stronger, the more you get out your own pain and fears and BS beliefs you've been taught about yourself, as you guys, my listeners have heard me say a million times, the more you do that, the stronger you become, the more confident in your own voice. And the more willing you are to stand up for whatever it is you believe is right. And stand up for your values. But yeah, I mean, if you want your son to find his voice and to find his sense of calling and find his happiness, a good start is to, A, give him love, give him support, apologize for what you feel you've done wrong, be open to hearing what he says you've done wrong, and own it, but then also heal your own past. Your son is where he is today in part, in part because of the shit you brought into parenting and in part the shit your husband has brought into parenting, which comes from his own pain, from his own fucking childhood. Yeah, right. You've got some big decisions uh, ahead here, Faith. Let me ask you one final question today. One final question. And it's simply this. What are you feeling right now? What's going on inside of you right now? Be honest. A um, little bit scared. What's the scariest part? Um, speaking for what I really want. That's right. Um I kind of let that stuff go with the drill sergeant stuff because <laughs> I thought that he needed somebody stronger than me. I was always told I wasn't strict enough when I was first mothering my children, you know, and I thought that they needed somebody stricter than me and that would have, would in, in the end be good for them. And now I'm knowing that it, it wasn't. Right. And isn't it interesting, the power of those criticisms that we hear and we listen to those voices, gee, I'm not strict enough. I should do this. I should do that. And we listen to all those other voices around us. Well, why do we listen to those other voices? Oh, because in childhood, I was taught not to listen to my own voice. Yeah. So you went right Absolutely. in. Exactly. And you're not the only one, Faith. I'm not dogging you. I've done the same shit in my life, had some of the similar patterns. But once we lose our voice, we start listening to everybody else's voice. And that's where the mistakes really start to compound. But it's not too late to unravel those mistakes. It's not too late to atone for the pains. It's not too late to change yourself. Cripes, you're 42. Do you know how many women in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, if I asked them what age they could go back to, they'd say, give me my early 40s back. Some would say other ages, for sure. You're still so young. There's so much life ahead for you. And there's so much life ahead for your son. There really is. Yeah. Give him the love. Give him the love. Just love him. Give him the space. Give him the freedom. And you need to begin the freedom to begin to allow his own voice up. But you need to begin to heal yourself first and foremost, because the stronger you are, the more safe space you'll be able to create for him. And you'll be able to help him begin to hear his own voice because you'll have done it yourself. Faith, I am so grateful, and I know my listeners are so grateful because your story resonates with so many people, so many parents in situations, but then we discovered you lost your own voice, and that resonates with far more than just parents. Yeah. So I I really, on behalf of the team, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm loving your book, your podcast, everything. Oh, you're a sweetheart. Thank you so much, Faith. Thank you. And to all of our listeners around the United States and Canada and Mexico and around the world, uh, thank you so much for tuning in to these stories from Jess and Faith. And isn't it fascinating, Rob, how people's stories, there's always something in there that that connects with us. Uh, Harvard professor of psychology uh, back in the 20s, 30s, He said, that which is most universal, that which is most personal is most universal. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. And I listen to these stories, I feel kind of powerless, and I'm just glad you're here to handle it. Uh, Well, I, you know, it's, 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 it's like I tell my clients all the time, I'm not the one doing the work. I wasn't the one doing the work today. Faith was the one doing the work. Jess was the one doing the work. I'm just asking the questions. But they're the ones, and, and I'm offering to hold their hand to lead them into those dark caves of where all their fears and pains are. I'm just asking the questions, but they're the ones that are actually taking my hand and saying, yes, Sven, let's go into the cave. I, I'm ready today. And so the courage inside of them, and I've been where they are, different circumstances, but I've been where they are, those, the depression, the loss of voice, the sadness, the suicide, all that. And uh, the amount of courage and the willingness to walk into that, that's, that's the real hero shit as I see it. 
So on behalf of our guests today, on behalf of my dear friends and, and producers, Rob and KC, I want to thank you all for tuning in, whether you're calling in from England or Japan or wherever you may be. Thank you so much and have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Hey.